Welcome to She Talks Health with Sophie Shepard. Today's woman has a lot of questions about their health and lifestyle choices. But where can you get the right answers? The answer is here and the time is now. Here is your host, Sophie Shepard. Welcome back, ladies, to the She Talks Health podcast. This is your host, Sophie Shepard, a period health coach, and I am super, super excited to have Alicia Pinkston on the She Talks Health podcast today. It is Sexual Health Awareness Month, and Alicia is an ASECT certified sex therapist and a licensed psychotherapist and a PhD candidate in clinical sexology. Holy moly, I can't even believe I just got all those things out of my mouth. And Alicia specializes in working with individuals and couples who are struggling within relationships, intimacy, sexual concerns. She utilizes a non-judgmental approach, which is amazing, with open curiosity and evidence-based interventions to help her clients overcome obstacles and achieve their goals. And she's actually practiced all over the world in Austria, United Kingdom, Georgia, and now she lives in New York City. Alicia, welcome to the She Talks Health podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you for that great introduction. Um, I'm thrilled to be a part of your platform and to be asked to be here today. Um, what you're doing, allowing women the space to, to share, support, educate, and really empower women. And I really believe that, especially regarding our sexuality, as we've been taught so many messages whether our parents, our religion, our culture, um, social media, we're being given all these messages of what our sexuality is supposed to be like. So I think it's really important that women understand that and what they what it is right for them. And so having this dialogue, I'm excited about um, sharing some of these things. Yeah, it's so exciting. And it's something that we don't get enough time to talk about. And I think it's so taboo still to talk about sex. And I would love to talk about all of that. And I also just want to make sure that everyone knows also what ASECT stands for in your title and like how you got into being an ASECT certified sex therapist and all of this like sex therapy that you do. Such a great question. Um, when I originally became a therapist, I wanted to work with young adults um, with depression and anxiety. That was really a passion of mine, um, hoping that the sooner we can help people in their lives, um, the better, that they don't have to go through their whole life feeling this way. And no matter where I was working, no matter which country or which state or even which age group, the idea of talking about sex was very uncomfortable for people. We would normally have a question in our intake, our first session with, you know, are you having any sexual concerns you want to discuss today? And everybody said no. You know, sometimes the forums would say, are you sexually active? I don't want to say. So there was already this stigma around talking about sex. And I found that once patients felt comfortable with me and trusted me, that they could say, oh, you know, by the way, and a lot of times the sexual components were having a big impact on their mental health. For example, anxiety. If a man was having trouble with erection and every time he sees his partner, he avoids sex because he doesn't want her to think that he's not into her, so he avoids being intimate, of course he's going to get anxiety. It's not gonna just be anxiety within that relationship, 
the anxiety in his identity and being a man and what does this mean? So if we could get to where people were talking about sex was great. And I think that that allowed people to trust me and to feel open and say, wow, I never knew I could talk about this and I feel so much better sharing this. But I think the pivotal moment was when I had, I worked oh, I at love a, a good pivotal moment. Pivotal <laughs> moment. All right. Um, I, there, I was working within a large practice in another country and a therapist came to me and said, you know, Alicia, I have this patient, but he just told me he has some sexual concerns. Now, I don't know what they are, but that, you know, I don't do that. So I'm just working on his depression. So I'd like to refer him to you to work on the sexual issues and I'll still work with him on depression. And that was just like a light bulb for me of how we can't separate our sexuality. The, se the sexuality was a part of his depression. And what she did, and she didn't clearly didn't mean to, was even further stigmatized of, oh, you have a sexual issue. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, I decided I wanted to really continue my work learning more um, about sex therapy. I had started to dabble in it once I'd seen the um, uncomfortableness with people. But after that pivotal moment, I decided to start the ASECT program, which is the American Association for Sex Counselors, Educators, and Therapists. It's the only accreditation in the States. It's a very rigorous program. It's about two years consisting of classes and also clinical training with patients. Um, so I completed my work and became a sex therapist. Um, I'll make a reference of all these these things for for the listeners but if you are looking for someone to talk about something sex related please refer to ASECT because every therapist on there is not only a licensed psychologist mental health social worker but then they have the additional certification of sex therapist um, because quite honestly most therapists are not given any training regarding sex Wow. In their program. In my master's program, we didn't have one single class. Most social work programs don't. Maybe they'll have a class you can take as an elective. Even in marriage and family, there is very little education done about sex. Wow. And wow. so you know, you may have you may have a GP that's uncomfortable talking about sex. Now I think GPs have to say do you have any sexual concerns? Are you sexually active? But I mean, I'm a lot older probably than um, some of the people in the audience, but I remember when you would go for your annual and sex was not discussed. That's like you go to your OB for that. But now they will typically ask, but um, a lot of doctors and therapists are uncomfortable talking about sex. So that's something I'm very passionate about and why I'm so happy to be here so that we can kind of start this dialogue in um, a really honest, non-judgmental, open way. Oh, Alicia, thank you so much for sharing this beautiful story and how you got into it. And that pivotal moment is so such a light bulb moment. I mean, 
holy smokes, uh, the idea that the, the depression is not connected to, to sex is in, incredible, you know? And so I, I love that you kind of are breaking away those stigmas and helping people to really open up about this. I think you're right. The first step is even just having these conversations. And I'm glad we're, we're talking about this on a mass scale. So many, many women and men can, can learn about this. I think going into into all of this, it seems like there are a lot of factors at play into one's sexual desire as well. Um, and like the lack of, of sex and how to handle all of this, there's a lot of things that come up. So I think maybe we could talk about why do you think, you know, this is such a taboo subject? Like, you know, we're, I think we're really struggling to figure out how to talk about this, even in, like you mentioned, physicians' offices. And even if they do mention are you sexually active? It's not going to go past that, that question, right? So there's really no there's no training um, on on sexuality and the things that we do get are through the through the media. And I think sometimes it's also confusing. Could you speak into why it's taboo and do you feel like there's mixed messages coming from media about sex? Well, that's a loaded question. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, first of all, if we just go back to the basics of like. Kenzie, Masters, and Johnson, how we first learned about sex. And so Masters and Johnson's had a very linear, linear approach to how sex happens. And it was excitement phase, plateau, orgasm, and then resolution. Mm. And then Dr. Rosemary Besson came around and said, well, that doesn't really work for women. For women, it's not so linear. And for women, it can kind of get, come, and it's more like a circular model because it ebbs and flows. But what's very different is this idea of arousal versus desire. So arousal... Okay, you're going to definitely, definitely need to go into those. <laughs> it's very tricky. You hear the words interchange, but they're different. So desire means emotionally wanting sex. So let's say a guy has an erectile issue. He may emotionally want to have sex with his partner. He longs to do that. However, arousal is the psychological changes that happen within your body. So for men and women, it's very different. So a man may get aroused, meaning getting an erection, and not even realize, oh, I'm thinking about sex and I want to have sex. It's, it's, it, the arousal can easily happen first. For women, typically, the desire happens and then the arousal. So it, you know, not to stereotype it, we've always been told men are so much more visual than women. And there's a lot of research to support that. But there's also some new research um, the last couple of years that's come out that when they had men and women, and we're talking heterosexual right now, watching porn, the men reported higher rates of arousal than the women, but actually the women were becoming aroused, um, but they didn't realize it or they were cutting it off. So when I say arousal, oh, right, huge. Right, right. So they were becoming lubricated, their heart rate was increasing, um, there was a lot of blood flow. There were things going on within their body, but psychologically, they were not. Wow. So this is kind of the difference between men and women when it comes to like the sexual arousal and desire model. They're, they're, it's kind of different. 
Um, yeah, and it's not always. I mean, uh, you know, I think the worst thing we can ever do in sex is say there's a right or wrong way. Mm-hmm. There's a million different things that turn people on. Because one woman wants to be touched this way doesn't mean another. There are so many different exceptions to it. Um, but when we also talk about arousal and desire, we talk about responsive or spontaneous. So some spontaneous might be like, I see this person, I want to have sex now, versus responsive is like, we're talking, maybe they're touching me, maybe they're giving me eye contact, and then you start responding. And that's typically what most women, not all, but most women like, um, which leads us into foreplay. Um, I'm really laughing here because, you know, I think, I don't know if anyone else, I'm sure other women who are going to listen to this are, are thinking this, but... This is so real for me. Like if my partner is not engaged in that way, I don't want to have sex. Like I, I want you to be like paying attention to me. I want you to be touching me. I want you like, I, and yeah, like, can it be spontaneous? Absolutely. And you know, mm-hmm. I think this is a, a really beautiful way to like, kind of like weave in. And I'm sure you talk about this too. Some of the work that I do around understanding your cycle, because what I find is that this in me, um, and I find this with, uh, with other women that I coach, this, this changes depend, a little bit changes when, depending on which hormone is in the driver's seat. And when you're closer to ovulation, your testosterone is highest. And so that's your male, male sex hormones, testosterone. And so I find that women are more like, I want an alpha male. I want him now get in my bed. <laughs> you know, right, right, right. is like later on when progesterone's in the driver's seat. And we're more like, you know what, uh, I really need you to like be touching me slowly or like taking me out to dinner or like mm-hmm. taking me out to trash or like doing something right. that's more like soft, right? More yeah. feminine and more loving. So I don't know, do you find that in your work as well, that it shifts for women depending on where they are versus men who are like testosterone every day, every day on repeat? <laughs> Yeah, it does. It not only shifts within the, like you said, within the cycle, but also within your lifespan. And um, we'll get into a little bit, you know, what what we do to accelerate and to stop um, desire and arousal. But you're you're right, and I know we're focusing on women, but I also want to say one thing about men, in Absolutely. case some of you out there are with men. Um, I think there's a lot of new research that's going to be helpful as it relates to men because I do see couples come into me where the female, once again, we're talking heterosexual, um, the female comes in and she's got a higher desire level for sex and intimacy than the male. And that can be very, very difficult for men because men are always Oh, they're always ready. They have all this testosterone. They're ready to go anytime. They don't, they don't get into their heads. They don't worry about their bodies. They don't worry about their relationship. That's not true. It's, mm-hmm. it's especially, you know, after some time. So I think there's still a lot that needs to be learned there because I think as, as women, if we understand that about them, then, then we don't take it to mean something else because that's what happens a lot when I see couples is they're no longer having sex. She, he was always the pursuer. Now he's not pursuing. She thinks he's not into her. There's something wrong with her. So now she's even losing her desire for herself or to masturbate. But it's the fact that he doesn't want to disappoint her with, you know, Mm -hmm. premature ejaculation or not being able to have an erection. So um, while men and women are different, 
and women definitely need a more responsive arousal. Some, some men do too. That's a really great point. And I've definitely um, seen this in, in partners that I've been with before where that, you know, especially after you've been together for a long time um, in relationships, I think that is so huge. And, um, you know, that I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we do have to move away from these, these statistics or these, like, I don't know, these, these ways we think about things so linearly, like you mentioned, it's not always so linear, right? And um, we have to keep that in mind because everyone's an individual and every, and the season of your life can be individual, right? You don't have, you're not a stagnant being, you're an energetic person, you know, energy is literally flowing through you, it's going to shift and change as different things grow and move in your body. So I think that that's, that's really amazing. Thank you for bringing that up. Really sure. Sure. Um, so I want to make sure I get back to your question. I may have gone on a tangent there. <laughs> okay. um, I think this was pretty good tangent to go on. Um, so I guess you're talking a little bit about the stigma. So that's just a little background on arousal and desire, but when are we first taught about sex? Where were you? Do you remember the first time a teacher, a parent, a community member, a friend? I mean, I remember for me that I got caught kissing a boy when I was in kindergarten Ooh. by his mom. You know, uh-huh. um, I don't know if it came through. I'm going to say that again. Um, I remember when I was a, a teenager, or sorry, a teenager. I was in kindergarten, and uh, I would, got caught by a. Um, kissing a boy and his mom came up and saw us and I remember it was like this whole scandalous thing that you weren't supposed to do so it's like from the first iteration of desire or whatever it is right. as a small child you're being like shamed for sex wow <laughs> wow experience. I like that story too because like that story is kind of playful right you were did you say you were outside at recess I, um, there, yeah, I was outside. Well, there was actually two. Oh my gosh. Now that I'm thinking about this, there were two, there was one outside at recess and literally facing the boy. And there was another one. We were like playing, you know, with something in in the house and we were just in like a room in in a house and his mom, you know, walked in and we were like kissing or something. (laughs) I love that you use the word play because sex, you know, can be very playful. I mean, it's the place of, escape, relaxation, you know, it's supposed to be this happy, wonderful, pleasurable, anxiety-reducing place, Mm. but for so many people, it's the opposite. And so if we go back to how did we first learn about sex? Probably a lot of people just like you. I mean, my mom cut out the Dear Abby article about a girl that had sex one time and got pregnant, and that was it. Yeah. Oh, wow. my bed. That's the other thing that I find so many women who come to see me for all their period issues think they're going to get pregnant the second they come off birth control. And I'm like, do you actually understand how hard it is to get pregnant? Like, it's not something you can just, you can't just create a child any day of the month. It doesn't right. like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's what your mom did. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing is that we are, most of us are taught about sex in a scary way. You could get an STD. You could get pregnant. You could get abused. You could get made fun of by everyone. I mean, all these things, it's like very few people were taught, especially by their, their mom, that 
sex is, can be a very pleasurable, loving, safe, intimate place. Mm-hmm. And these are the kind of things you need to think about before you get involved to make sure that you're taken care of. But typically we're taught about sex like it's something bad or scary or we, something bad could happen. Um, but yet then we see in media, like you were saying earlier, the mixed messages, right? I mean, we're supposed to be empowered, sexual creatures can do what we want with who we want. But then we were like, we have all these messages of religion and, and family and what will our friends say and what is the culture? So it's just this, is this back and forth, you know, especially like, let's say you work in a male dominated industry, which I used to do. And like, how do I keep that balance between I'm a a female, but also I don't want anybody to think anything. I don't want to cross the line. So it's like, I think as women, we're constantly walking this balance of, of how do we integrate? Oh gosh. Does that make sense? My brain. Yes. It makes so much sense, Felicia. My brain just opened up in so many ways because you're right. It's like from the time we are kids, we're taught all the bad things about sex and we're not taught any of the good things. And then, you know, we're taught we're going to get STDs. We're taught we're going to get pregnant. We're taught that, you know, don't be too, 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 um, you know, liberal with who you have sex with and all these things. And, you know, I think to share something also like, um, kind of, uh, personal thinking about these early childhood memories of, of sex and sexuality. (laughs) I don't know if anyone else can relate to this. I'm sure that I'm sure other women can, but I remember being one of the first women in or first girls in my class to develop a a woman's body. And Mm -hmm. so therefore, and I was also new at the school. And so therefore I was very much the like apple of the guy's eyes, right? They kept kind of like, Oh my gosh, what are these breasts? You know, (laughs) it's like, I want to touch those or whatever. I don't know what's going on through a a 13 year old boy's body of mind, but Uh you know, I, it, and it was a very confusing time because I remember thinking, do I really want that? And I remember thinking, I don't want that attention. And so I would start to cover myself up. And then when I found somebody who I did want that attention from, I started to peel that layer back. But you know, when that ended, I think the, the, the layer was still peeled back. And though I had this feeling in my body that even if no one ever said it, that people thought that I was a slut or something just because of the way my mm-hmm. body was more filled out than some mm-hmm. of the other women. Um, and because of that, I think there was more of an attraction to, um, mm-hmm. for, for guys to be more attracted. Right. And certainly there was more hormones happening on my end. Right. Then there's right. probably before you hit that, um, physicality. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of interesting to think back to about how all these different things impact you as an adult. And I remember going through a whole period of like having body shame, just for, just for being a curvy woman. I mean, just for, just for that, you know? And, um, I think it's just interesting how if, even if it's not spoken, we get all these messages downloaded when we're kids and then we carry them. Right. And then the mixed messages from the media. And now we're so confused about sex. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, you know, when I talk about therapy in general, because I see patients for things other than, than sex concerns is, a lot of people have this cognitive dissonance, which means here are the values and what's important and the way I'm supposed to live my life defined by my childhood. That could mean your family, your, your community, your church, your synagogue, whatever it is. And now I'm an adult 
and I'm not so sure they align. And so how do I manage that? You know, if I was brought up that I need to go to a religious service every week and I should marry a man and I should have two kids and then I, I grow into myself and I say, you know what, mm, I actually want to be with a woman. I don't want to be with a man. And maybe I don't want to have kids. And maybe that religion I was taught, I really believe this now instead. So how do you, how do you, how do you align with that? I mean, that's, and that's a big part of things that we do that turn ourselves off sexually. And I want to, I want to take a minute to talk about Emily Nagalski. Um, Amazing book called Come As You Are. She's a scientist and a therapist. And it's so simple, but so brilliant. She calls it the dual control model. So everything we do with sex is either putting on the brakes, stopping all this desire and arousal, or accelerating it. So if we're thinking about our, if we have this cognitive difference, we're, we're living our life. Let's say I'm living my life um, as a lesbian, but I was brought up to think that that was wrong or immoral, then I am putting on the brakes with my sexuality. I'm holding myself back. You know, maybe I never end up with a woman. I just stay with a man because that's what I'm supposed to do. So I'm putting a break. If I have, like you're saying, the body, the body issues are big with women. I can't tell you how many women say to me, yeah, I was so into him, but like I was having a quote unquote fat day or I didn't want him to see me or when the lights out. So the minute we tell ourselves that about our bodies, we're putting on the brakes. Wow. Those are huge things to think think about. Right. Oh my gosh. You're so right. There's so many times I've put on the brakes so many times. And then, and then you think about the fact that you're not the only one putting on the brakes, (laughs) you know, I mean, I've definitely had um, experiences with partners where they, they were putting on the brakes because of that same feeling of not feeling fit, you know, and not wanting thinking, well, someone's not going to, so-and-so is not going to desire me or it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth or, you know, whatever. And, and then mm-hmm. you have that break on. Okay. So that's the break. What's the accelerator? Well, the accelerators are feeling comfortable within our body, doing what we want to do, not going into a sexual relationship going, mm, do I really want to do this? Or do I just feel guilty or Oh, you know, we haven't done it in a week, so I better, you know, have sex with them this week. Um, so the, the, the messages that you send yourself about why you're having sex or the person you're having sex with or just around yourself um, can help or decrease your desire or arousal. Let's say you're in a relationship and you really like this person. You feel really comfortable and safe with them. You feel like you can express yourself that puts on, you know, the accelerator. You tell yourself, oh, you know what? Remember when he or she was there for me and I trust them and I'm really into them and they're good to me and I can tell them what I want sexually. So all these mm-hmm. things help with the accelerator. Mm-hmm. And often we're riding down the road <laughs> with a break on. <laughs> Sometimes the emergency break, right? And so what happens, not only does that happen within our, I think you just cut out a little bit. You said you were riding down the, the road with the emergency brake. Yes, sometimes. Not just the regular brake, but the emergency brake. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so right. It's so true. We put these limitations on. Wow. 
and not just in sex and everything, right? We're constantly judging ourselves, but that's where the, the, probably where a lot of the work that you do with the body and mind connection. So when you're thinking these things and, you know, the vulva, it consists of so many muscles, right? And tension. And so what happens is, and I know we're going to want to talk about orgasm at some point, um, but orgasm is about release, about letting go. And when you're anxious or uptight about something sexual, the last thing that's going to happen is, is orgasm. But mm-hmm. also when we think about what goes on in the vulva and the muscles and the spasm, and there's where a lot of things within our body start putting on the brakes as well. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, this is a great, maybe time to, to segue into orgasm because I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of stigma about it. Like, you know, I think there's, you know, oh, I have to have an orgasm from sex. <laughs> uh, but a lot of women have an orgasm through intercourse, right? So there's all so now we have this other layer of judgment, right? About what this experience is supposed to be because we've watched porn or something or whatever, and we're like, oh, what? I'm supposed to be this way, and I've never even done this, and now I'm lying or faking it. Or can we talk about all this stuff because this is a lot to kind of unpack about orgasm. Yes, yes. So orgasm is not the measure. As Emily Nagowski says, pleasure is the measure. Oh, I like that. It rhymes. (laughs) Right? That's cute. Pleasure is the measure. So it's about what you're experiencing during this. It kind of goes back a little bit to like it's the journey, not the destination. Because if the end goal is just to get in there, get the orgasm, get out, you're missing so much of the pleasure, the fun, the intimacy. So I also think that from my experience is that a lot of women are faking it. We have a lot of research showing, you know, over 50% of women at some point point in their life have faked an orgasm. But the good news is we're seeing less people are doing that, but we still have, and, and we're really doing a disservice to ourselves and to our partners. Um, and I think, if we're looking at this pressure, like we have to have an orgasm and then we have to be like this porn actress and like, you know, make this big ordeal about our orgasm. There's just a lot, um, a lot of pressure. So when some women say, I'm scared it's taking me too long or they're kind of watching the stuff wondering, is he or she so into it? Maybe I should just fake it and get it over with, mm-hmm. which I think is another important part is that new research just came out that most women take 14 minutes. Wow. Pleasuring before they can reach orgasm. Wow. That's incredible research to have. And this is like within the last year. So we've always known that it takes women a lot longer than men, but when you put about it in that perspective, it can really help women relax. And also we can educate their partners. Like nobody should be rushed to have an orgasm. Nobody should be like, have an orgasm. Are you about there? Are you about there? Like, that's not what it's about. It's a, it's about the connection and the intimacy. Um, And also the idea of what is sex. I have to give a little plug on that too, because I think Yes, we call it PIV, penis and vagina. Um, That is the typical kind of definition we've been told about sex. And that's not correct. 
Sex can be kissing, can be cuddling, can be touching, can be oral, can be anal, can be so many different things. But this is where it's kind of been an issue with younger adults. So that we know the average age of having sex for women is age 16 to 17. And that stayed pretty pretty stable over the years. What is different is that women, girls much younger than that are engaging in oral sex, touching, kissing, all, all kinds of these other things that they don't consider sex. So they're saying, no, I haven't been sexual. I've only done oral. Oh, but wow. That is sex. And so, and, and, and also this idea that we have foreplay, then we have sex. It's like, no, foreplay is a part of, of intimacy. So mm-hmm. I think changing some of these definitions and um, like you said, only 20% of women can have an orgasm from penetration, penis and vagina only. Mm-hmm. I, I would almost say that number is lower, but I can't find any research to support that. But most women cannot orgasm that way. Yeah. And I think, I think also, I mean, it, the idea that that sex is, it's, again, it's, it's all, it's still considering it's heterosexual sex. I mean, there's, there's a whole other world for people out there. So it's the idea that that sex is just completely incorrect. I love that you just said that. And instead of it, you know, like kind of painting around the edges, it's just, no, that's, that's incorrect. There's all these other ways of being intimate and having, and having sex. So thank you for. Yeah. And I think you made a good point. I'm sorry if I didn't say that earlier, because I think it's very important. A lot of the research I'm referring to is heterosexual couples. And that's really an injustice um, to all the other ways that people identify and identify their relationships. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough data on that. Mm. Um, I think that's an also very important uh, point to recognize. We know that lesbians have a lot more orgasms than heteros- women in heterosexual relationships. Well, so. that makes a lot of sense considering right? – Right. 20% or less of women can right. have an orgasm from um, PIV, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. really interesting. Well, go, go, that's awesome. Go lesbians. I'm glad mm-hmm. orgasm. Mm-hmm. But I guess going back to this, this redefinition of orgasm and sex and I mean, where, where do we, where do you think people can work? It, what appears to me is like, it seems like there's this, um, lo- so first of all, there's a, a lack of knowledge of like what these things are. Then there's like miscommunication with, with, um, people who are supposed to teach it to you <laughs> um, or who we think are supposed to teach it to us. And then there's, um, mixed messages with media. And then there's a, a physical element of how, how do you, how are you feeling physically? Right. And then there's an emotional element of how are you doing emotionally with your, with your relationship with yourself. And then there's just the emotional relationship with the other person. So <laughs> there's so many layers and areas people can get stuck. And I guess it, it can be hard to increase sexual desire if you're dealing with all these things. So how, how, how would you suggest people go around kind of having these, I guess maybe starting with how do people have these conversations with a partner um, or how do they go about increasing sexual desire? I would think that would be one of the things you would have to do is have a conversation with your partner, but maybe there's other ways you can increase sexual desire. Yes. I'm going to work backwards if you don't mind on that question, but the, 
There's a lot of layers in this. Yeah, there, there is. There is. There's so much um, to be said. So lack of lack of knowledge, like we talked about. What what were we taught growing up versus what is really the truth? For example, we need 14 minutes of intimacy before we can orgasm. Not all women orgasm. Most women have the ability to orgasm. Understanding how most women orgasm is through the clitoris, understanding where your clitoris is, how you like it to be touched or licked or whatever, or vibrator. And most women find that out through masturbation. Some women do have their first orgasm with a partner, but the majority of women learn through masturbation how they like to be touched, where their clitoris is. So if we just took masturbation and put it on a shelf by itself, that is a big issue, right? Because we're taught growing up, don't touch there. Ooh, don't do that. But, oh, men have wet dreams, and oh, that happens, and they play with themselves. So masturbation is something we can come back to if we have time because that is a way that women learn what they like so they can communicate with their partner. Um, and I recommend, to knowing your parts, understanding that what the vulva is, the labia, the vagina. The vagina is the cavity where a baby comes out of or where you have sex. So people refer to the entire region sometimes as a vagina, the JJ, as people say, <laughs> but it's the vulva. So looking at anatomy one. 101, understanding what you look like, and then actually taking a hand mirror and looking at yourself. It's a real, it's very difficult for a lot of women. And um, I will also reference this great photographer out of London, and her name's escaping me. She took a photos of 100 vulvas in different women, different ages, everything different. Yes, and I know I know about this. I actually met me I met someone who has a collection of her photos and has these open dialogues with women about their vagina and like about these different images. It's amazing. It's so great. I can send you like a link so yeah. your listeners can look at look at that because that is once again where the media, you know, labioplasties were something we never heard of 10 years ago, but now women are looking at their vulva and thinking it's too big, it's too small, it's too dark, it's too light, it's too hairy, it's not hairy enough. I mean, it's like, here's where a lot of the breaks come into play as we look at ourselves and we judge ourselves of what it we're supposed to look like. So I think for women to get to know their body, what they like, how they like to be touched, what feels good to them, that will make it easier to talk to their partner about it um, I find, unfortunately, by the time most couples end up in my office, there has not been a lot of dialogue about sex, or it's only been negative. And I think a lot of people make assumptions. So I think that if couples could talk about what they like, and always, I always encourage people to say it in a positive way, like, oh, I really liked it when you did this. I'd love that more. Or show a movie or show a porn of, hey, this would be really fun. Could we try this? Um, I think some people are scared to share their fantasies or what they'd like with their partners for fear of judgment. Yeah. But it's it's really what we need to do. I mean, I think we would do that if we were going on a trip. We'd say, no, I really want to go here. No, I really don't want to go there. Like We would speak up and 
a lot of ways, but when it comes to our sexuality, you know, women are still being people pleasers. Women are still putting men's needs in front of theirs. And um, another reference would be Peggy Ornstein. She's done extensive research in this, and she talks exactly about this, how women have no problem advocating for what they want in all areas of their life. Um, but then when it comes to sex, there's still this mentality of, oh, I have to please my partner before I worry about myself. And so part of that is empowering us to understand what we want sexually and then also what we want with a partner if we decide so. This is so important. And my whole brand is about empowering women in their health. And you know what? Sexual health is part of that. You know, mm-hmm. in, in IIN, Institute for Integrative Nutrition, which was my first training, as a health coach, Joshua Rosenthal spoke about there's primary food and there's secondary food. And primary food is not the food you put in your mouth. Okay. It's the, it's the food of, of your soul. It's, Mm -hmm. are you sleeping? It's, are you connecting with other human beings? Are, how, how are your relationships? And by extension of that, and I don't know that he would, you know, say this, I'm sure, maybe I'm sure he would, maybe I'm sure he wouldn't. I don't know him personally, but you know, I would say of an extension of relationship is, you know, how is your sex life? How are, how is your, your relationship with yourself and sex? And, and when those things are off balance, it affects you mentally and emotionally. It puts the brakes on it. It makes you look at yourself in a certain way. And we, like you said earlier, we all always have these self judgments we're carrying around. It's just Mm -hmm. another shameful layer that we are choosing to carry with us. And you know Mm -hmm. what, that affects everything. And you know, I think about um, tying to physical ailments. I have a lot of women who come who are dealing with endometriosis or pelvic pain. And, you know, when we dig into their history and we're trying to figure out when did this all happen for you, a lot of times I'll find that there's like a history of trauma. Now, it, and it doesn't have to be like a, like a, like a rape or, or something like that. It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a, like necessarily a sexual like trauma, but it could be relational trauma, like just ending a a relationship where they weren't able to express themselves or something like that. And I I find it's so interesting that this, this does relate back into, you know, like a, a world of, you know, physical pain for some women. Um, And of course that's going to impact their, again, their future sexual desire. So I think, I think there's just so many layers here and I think you're absolutely right that the, I would think that one of the first steps you could take to be empowered in this is to explore your own body and find out what you like, and then, then be feeling more empowered to be able to share that with another person. um, Even though it's challenging when it's the right person to share it with too. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And always sharing and, smaller pieces to to see can I trust this is this person you know giving them small pieces and it's the same way with educating if any of your listeners have children it's the same thing with teaching children about sex just little nuggets of information appropriate to their developmental phase so it's something that you're always just kind of feeding them and you know being sexual or is a part of being human and I think, you know, so many of us have thought of it, it's about reproduction, but it's so much more. There's a, a physical and emotional component of it. And to hit a little bit on what you're talking about, some of the probably the issues you see women coming into your office with a lot of pain, 
painful sex is something that needs to be talked about. We could do a whole show on that because we'll do a whole show on that actually. Yeah, be because, a really good part two. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because so many doctors, if they can't figure out what it is, they just say dyspernia, you know, painful sex. But is it endometriosis? Is it vaginismus? Is it vulvodynia? Is it a cyst? Is it, I mean, is it, I mean, there could be so many different things that are causing pain. And I encourage women, sex should not be painful. It should not. And I have met far too many women that have endured painful sex. Mm-hmm. Um, now, also lubes. I just need to put a plug in there for lubes. <laughs> lubes, lubes, and more lubes. Jen, we've had. Um, okay. Good, 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 good. Because that's really, and, and the right kind of lubes that are good for your body. But, you know, so there's these very physical things that happen within your body that really do affect your mental state. And and sex can make you release, you know, incredible oxytocin and great chemicals and you feel that high and it can be good for your heart rate, good for menstrual pain. You know, so many positive things about a positive sexual experience but then also equally negative sexual experiences can cause a lot of mental and physical um, issues as well. Such a good point to bring up the fact that the positive is, is really positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Improve things like period pain, um, which is something of course I deal with a lot in my psych, in my, um, in my work with women in their cycles. Um, but yeah, you're right. The negative stuff can really stick around um, for, for a while. Yeah, and, and just to give a, a deeper plug there for the lube, I don't have a necessary a brand that I, I like represent, but it, you guys think about this. Please think about this before you put lube on. If you're putting lube on your vagina or on a penis that's going into your vagina and it's got a ton of toxic chemicals and you're having period-related issues or pelvic pain, this is not helping the problem. Please, mm-hmm. please don't do this to yourself. This is like really like, you know, we talk a lot about endocrine disruptors in, in my practice and that's a hormone. Endocrine means hormone, hormone disruptors. And, you know, we, I think there's been a big awareness in the world about parabens and phthalates and all the Mm insulfate, all these things that we don't want to be putting on our body, but you know, we don't think about sexual wellness when we, when we think about that. And it's so important, you know, you're, that's the most, one of the most porous places that you can absorb these chemicals into your body. And it's right going into the, right into the place where you're going to be having the sex that might already be a challenge for you if you're not, you know, using the right lubes or, or having the right sexual desire or having pelvic pain. So I just wanted to, I know that's a little bit off topic of what we've been talking about, but since we were on the topic of lube. <laughs> no, that's very important. You know, there's different kinds and people have different opinions from my experience of what I've seen with patients, even though the coconut oils, the avocado oils are very natural, they're not good. Um, I would look for, I can send once again a reference sheet of some comparison, but the the products that are all natural and understanding the difference in a water base versus a silicone, under understand what you're putting on your body basically and how it affects condoms, how it affects your sex toys, all those kinds of things. Um, yeah, we'd love that it. reference guide. That would be amazing. Okay, yeah. sure. Absolutely. Um, so we're, we're kind of nearing the end of probably this episode. It sounds like we have so many more <laughs> we can go into here. Is there, you know, are there any other like tips or tricks or things that you want to discuss around, you know, how to increase sexual desire or identify obstacles or, 
you know, just ideas or options around addressing this. I think we've covered, we've covered so much, but I want to make sure if there's anything that you really want to dive into that we leave time for that before we end. Well, the one thing I think we didn't talk too much about, but I think you're, you've addressed before is the relational. So if you notice your desire is going away, not only can it be things within yourself that you're putting the brakes on, but it also could be relationship issues um, that can really hurt desire as well. I mean, who wants to have sex with someone that you don't feel you can trust or doesn't care about how you feel or didn't resolve the fight from last week or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there's also a, a relational component as well. But I really love the idea of just understanding what good sex means to you. And when I sex, say sex, that could be partnered sex, alone sex, but what feels good to you? And then finding a way to share that with your partner. Unfortunately, I don't think enough women have a chance to really explore themselves and what they want before they get with a partner. Um, so empower yourself to say, you know, actually I want to be touched this way or moving his or her hand that way and showing them what, what you like. Um, but not being afraid to, to listen to your body, never have painful sex, understand what feels good. and empower what what you want not what the media is wanting what not what porn is saying you should do or instagram but what you want i love that i love that and alicia when when would someone what someone or couples consider coming to like a sex therapist like when when would be that place where you know you've tried the things on your own and you've tried to become empowered and you've tried to figure out all these things that you like and and whatever, but maybe you're just feeling like you need some additional support outside of outside of yourself. Um, could you explain kind of why people, when people come to you, either in relationship or outside of relationship? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, we say that sex, when you're having good, fulfilling sex, it's 20% of your relationship. If you're feeling frustrated with the kind of sex you're having with your partner or the amount of sex or whatever, anything around sex, now it's 80% of your relationship. So when you start having sexual issues within a couple, the sooner the better. Otherwise, it starts overlapping into everything. So I think the number one thing I see with couples is a desire discrepancy. One person wants to have more sex than the other or a different kind of sex than the other or spontaneous sex versus planned sex. So usually that is where it happens. Um, but it's, it's never too early. You know, I'm, I'm seeing more and more young women come into my practice, which makes me so happy and saying, you know what? I don't know. I had this hang up about sex here. Or why does this happen there? It is so great to see these young women talking about these things and empowering themselves to get the answer. So it's, you know, sex therapy typically, not always, is a lot more short term. I may have a patient coming to me for depression that may be with me for a couple of years. A lot of times people come to sex therapy and say, I've never had an orgasm, or why is this happening, or what is what is going on here? It's something really specific we can focus on. And just be aware that a lot of therapists will say they are, they're a sex therapist, but look for that asect um, certification and I'll give you the link you can go on and just put wherever you live and you can find one in your area but it's if you're having a concern go in and talk to someone and sometimes they might refer you to a pelvic floor therapist a gynecologist you know but I, I work very closely with a lot of urologists and gynecologists as like a 
a treatment team for someone if it is something medically um, that's causing it. But it's, it's never too soon when you have a concern to reach out. That's so great. And I love what you said about, you know, having a team. I'm such a big believer of this, especially when we're talking about chronic pelvic pain. I mean, look, working with someone on sex therapy, working with pelvic, uh, pelvic care, physical therapy is great. Having a really good OBGYN is great. Working with someone like me who can help you on the physical side of things, like to clear out hidden, hidden stressors and get your cycle back on track or whatever it is. These are all aspects and you can kind of get to decide where in your journey you are and how one might support you more or less or how you can build this team. And I think it's, it's really important alongside that empowerment of making sure you feel really comfortable with your therapist that you go to, right? I mean, you don't just have to, you don't just have to accept any doctor or any therapist or any practitioner, you know, you get to choose who you work with, right? I think that's important. Absolutely. And if you go to a therapist and it doesn't feel like a good fit, you know, a good therapist is going to understand that. Like, I'm, I don't know if you get me or I'm not sure this could fit. That's okay. Go find another one. But a good therapist will want to hear that feedback of what, what's, what's not a fit. It's not always a fit. Sometimes you might have to go see one or two. Um, but that's what's so great about your platform is that you're, you know, when I look at some of the past um, podcasts that you've done, I mean, there's, there's women, there's public floor, there's, you know, like, you've got like, so many people that are passionate about this. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to work together as a team, we want to all collaborate um, and support you. 100%. 100%. I think looking for people who are, are willing to collaborate with other practitioners is really important. So we will drop all the links of all the things that you mentioned here. And Alicia, thank you so much. Is there, is there anything else at all that you want to mention? You've just covered so much and so many mind blowing topics today. No, just, just kind of where we started, just, you know, empowering women that, you know, you deserve pleasurable sex. You deserve intimacy with yourself or with a partner and enjoy. I want people to find the sex that they want to have and get rid of the obstacles that are holding them back from doing that. So I just, I hope that it can be something positive from people that they can take away from this and, and know that they do have options and solutions out there if they are struggling in this area. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. And ladies, this is Sophie Shepard. We've been talking with Alicia Pinkston, who is a certified sex therapist and a PhD candidate in clinical sexology, all about sex, um, every aspect of it. I feel like there's probably so many more things that we could cover. So I hope that this episode was super, super juicy for you and helpful. And as always, please feel free to share this with another woman who might need this. And in this case, share it with another ma man that might need this. Um, and this is the She Talks Health podcast. So you can find it really anywhere. And you can find me on social media at She Talks Health and SheTalksHealth.com. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week on the show. Thank you for joining us this week for She Talks Health. Please join Sophie Shepard again next week for another episode of our show on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.